Hey guys, and welcome back to episode 11 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast, book 2. Today we'll be reading chapter 11, but first a recap of chapter 10. So Captain Nolan shares some of Mr. Benedict's history about his parents, and how Mr. Benedict was trying to research more about them, but most information was confidential because they were scientists. After their talk, Captain Nolan invited Rennie to escort him to his room to stretch his legs. As Rennie was leaving the captain's quarters, the captain gave Rennie a gift of appreciation, which from the description I can only guess was a diamond, but Rennie never actually looked at it, so we may never know. The ship finally arrived in Libsyn, and so the children and Cannibal went ashore to look for Mr. Benedict's clue at the castle. Shortly after getting there, however, Cannibal had to leave them. Constance had another psychic incident and had a feeling Jackson was near them, and of course she was correct, but they didn't know if Joseph was near or not. Rennie started to think about Mr. Benedict's castle clue, and figured out it didn't quite mean what they thought originally. He didn't say what it meant in the 10th chapter, so we'll just have to read chapter 11 to find out. Okay, that's for you chapter 11. Chapter 11 Awkward Exchanges and Clever Disguises I can't believe you didn't see that sooner, said Constance, with an incredulous snort. It's perfectly obvious. Next time, you might trouble to look at it yourself, said Rennie, trying hard not to snap. Kate glanced around the corner of the castle wall. It's the nearest one. The other cannons all have cork or pine trees within two meters. She could speak with perfect clarity, since her talent for gauging distances. Pulling out her spyglass, Kate popped off the kaleidoscope lens and took a closer look at the cannon. See anything unusual? Rennie asked. Not yet. Maybe it's down inside the barrel, said Sticky. No, I think I see something now. Yes, that's it. There's a slightly darker area near the base of the cannon. Kate lowered the spyglass and grinned. It's rectangular. Like an envelope, Rennie said. Kate nodded. I think you were right. A little putty and paint and he was able to hide the envelope in plain sight. She put away the spyglass and took out her army knife. I can get it back and be here in 15 seconds. Shouldn't we do something to distract Jackson? Sticky asked. Too risky, said Kate. She slipped her bucket from her belt and set it down, then began untying her ponytail. Too many people around. Too little time. Joseph could show up any second. I just need to know when he's facing the other direction. I agree with Kate, said Rennie, but listen. If he does look your way... I'm one step ahead of you, pal. Kate shook her head vigorously, and then ran her fingers through her hair, teasing it up and forward until it stuck out on all sides and almost completely obscured her face. Sticky, can I borrow your glasses? Sticky cringed, but of course he couldn't refuse. Be careful with them, will you? When am I ever not careful, Kate said. She bounced the spectacles low on her nose so she could see over the rims. How do I look? Sticky squinted. Blurry. Weird, said Constance. Perfect, said Rennie with an approving nod. Kate untied one of her shoes and peeked around the corner again. He's still pacing, some number of steps in both directions. Looks left, looks right, looks left again. I do like that about Jackson. He's predictable. Okay, I'm off. Rennie took Kate's place at the corner and watched her go. She walked quickly, but not so quickly as to draw attention to herself, and she managed to appear slightly bow-legged. For a spur-of-the-moment disguise, it was pretty good. A wild-haired, bow-legged girl with an untied shoe, wire-rinsed spectacles, and no red bucket. If Rennie hadn't known better, he might not have recognized her himself. He glanced toward Jackson, who was still walking in the other direction. So far, so good. Kate swerved around a family that was approaching the cannon to take pictures, pretending not to notice her untied shoelace, and knelt by the cannon's base to tie it, which she did with one hand. In the other hand, Rennie saw her giant knife glint. 
There was no time to marvel at Kate's dexterity, though, for she was every bit as quick as she was dexterous. Already she'd scraped the envelope free, tired her shoe, and she was rising again, shoving the envelope and knife into her pocket with a triumphant smile. Then she hesitated. The mother in the family was speaking to her, holding out a camera, simply stepping in front of her. She wanted Kate to, Kate to take the family's picture together. Oh no, Rennie said. What's happening, Constance hissed. Get ready to run, Rennie said. He heard the other two suck in the breath. Kate was shaking her head, feigning comprehension. The mother had grabbed her arm, trying to make her understood. Finally, with an apologetic smile and an artful twist of her arm, Kate got away. But it was a costly delay, Rennie knew it. And from the expression on Kate's face, she knew it too. She was walking purposefully, but she couldn't risk running. Rennie looked to see if Jackson had noticed her. Jackson hadn't, but Jilson had. There was no mistaking Jilson. Six feet tall, greasy brown ponytail, arms like jackhammers. She had just come around the far corner of the castle, and as she approached Jackson, she was pointing in Kate's direction. Her expression was not one of outright recognition, but it was clearly suspicious. Jackson turned to look just before Kate rounded the corner. Whether or not he recognized Rennie, her or Rennie, couldn't say. He had to withdraw quickly to avoid being spotted himself. Did he notice me? asked Kate. Jillson did, Rennie said. We need to go. Jillson? Sticky cried. Kate snatched the shovel from Rennie. Move it then. Give Constance a ride. I'll meet you outside the gate. There was no time to argue or ask questions, nor even for Sticky to retrieve his spectacles. With Constance riding on Rennie's back and Sticky squinting, following close behind, the three of them hurried down the winding path through the thicket. Once again, starting peafowl from under the shrubs, across the plaza, down the steps, and toward the gate they ran. And as they ran, Rennie looked back to see that Kate had herded several people with the peafowl together and was shooting them around the corner of the castle. Even from this distance, he could hear a young woman's angry cry of surprise. That would be Jilson, followed by a great clucking, cooing, commotion. Kate, meanwhile, was tossing the shovel like a spear in the middle of the thicket. Rennie glanced ahead of the gate, almost there, and when he glanced back, Kate was disappearing around the castle's farthest corner. Jackson and Jilson came around the other corner, just as Rennie darted out through the gate. "'I don't think they saw us,' said Constance, who also had been looking back. "'But what if they look around? A lot of people saw us running to the gate. Indeed, some people were looking at them even now. A few were glancing about as if they wondered where the children's parents were. "'I can't imagine either of them speaks Portuguese,' said Siggy. "'We'll have to hope they don't find someone who speaks English. Maybe they won't even think to ask. They aren't very clever, you know.' As if to prove Siggy's point, a thwacking sound came from the direction of the thicket, followed by a loud oath. Jackson had stumbled upon the shovel Kate had put there for that very purpose. It sounded as if he'd stepped on the blade, causing the handle to fly up and strike him. The thought would have been amusing were Jackson's angry grumbling not growing louder and louder, more distant by the moment. "'Cleverer or not, they're coming this way,' said Rennie, staring anxiously at the gate. "'We need to get out of here. But Kate, what about me?' Everyone jumped and turned to see Kate grinning at them. "'Where did you come from?' Constance asked. "'I went over the far wall,' said Kate. She handed Sticky's spectacles. "'Listen, I heard them talking. They weren't sure who I was, but they're coming out to look around. Here, Rennie, you better let me carry Constance.' The children took off, hurrying away from the castle. Down, down, along the twisted cobble street, weaving through pedestrians, crossing tiled plazas, down and down to where the street grew more narrow and began to branch off into other streets and alleyways.' Gay come to the fishery district. The children stopped to catch their breath and get their bearings. Around them, the odor of fish mingled with more delicate scent of flowering bovagania, which draped the old stone walls. Locals and tourists brushed shoulders passing up and down the narrow street and crowded in the little doorway of the shops. 
Rennie and Sticky were now panting and clutching their sides. Sticky dropped to one knee and was moping his brow with his shirt. You guys are in awful shape, observed Constance from her perch on Kate's back. Kate was looking back up the way they'd come. The spyglass was of no use. The streets were too winding to allow her to see more than a block in any direction. But at least Jackson and Jilson were right behind them, which they all had half feared. We don't even know where we're going yet, Rennie gasped. We need to read the clue. They moved into an alley huddling together behind a stall, in which rows of huge fish were being stacked like logs. They would not be easily seen from the street. The fish vendor, a burly man wielding a cleaver, glanced at them, saw that they were only children, and returned to his task of lopping off fish heads. Kate slit the envelope open with her army knife. Inside was a note and a key. She glanced at the note. I can't make heads or tears of this, she said, handing the note to Sticky and directing her attention to the key. It was an ordinary metal key, smallish with the number 37 engraved upon it. Kate took out her farm keys to compare it with, thinking she might deduce what sort of thing it unlocked. She suspected a cabinet, or no, a locker. This key was much like the one for the grain locker in the barn, and lockers, after all, were usually numbered. Sticky, meanwhile, was reading the note aloud. This station word will train you to send the puzzle. What's a station word, anyway? asked Kate. I've never heard of any such thing, said Sticky. Maybe it's a... The train station, said Constance. Right, Rennie? This word puzzle will send you to the train station? That's the only possible answer. Startled, Sticky looked back and forth between Constance and the note in his hand. This new Constance, the one who could detect patterns and sense things the others couldn't, took some getting used to. Looks right to me, Rennie said. I'll bet this key opens a rental locker there, said Kate. Quick, Sticky, ask this man how to get to the strange station. She tapped the shoulder of the fish vendor. Sticky blinked, opened his mouth, and closed it again. The vendor looked at Kate and then at Sticky. He waved his cleaver impatiently and said something in Portuguese. I... I don't speak Portuguese, Sticky said, and Kate cocked her head in surprise. Constance looked positively disgusted. But on the ships, he said, when Captain Nolan asked you... I can write it, though, Sticky said, digging into his pocket for a pen, as the vendor watched and the others exchanged troubled glances. Sticky turned Mr. Benedict's note over and began to write. The vendor said something else in Portuguese. He made a writing motion with his hand and then shrugged and shook his head. He can't read, Rennie said. Let me get this straight, Kate said. Sticky can write Portuguese but can't speak it, and this fellow can speak it but can't read it. She seemed uncertain whether to be frustrated or amused. Rennie mean, Sticky, meanwhile, seemed ready to cry. Rennie stepped forward. Do you speak English? The man shrugged apologetically and turned away. Espanol? asked Rennie. He had studied Spanish for a couple of years at the Orphanage Academy. Portugal bordered Spain, so maybe... See, si, the man said, turning back to him. Un poquito. What's he saying? Kate asked. He speaks a little Spanish, said Rennie, and he quickly asked the man where the train station was located. After a brief, difficult exchange, they both spoke rather clumsily Spanish. Rennie deduced that the station was only a short walk away. The man even agreed to draw them a map, and with a few persistent strokes of the pen, he rendered quite an excellent one from the back of Mr. Benedict's note. He couldn't write the street names, but these he spoke aloud to Rennie, who thanked him heartily and turned back to the others. The girls were already set to go, with Constance riding piggyback and Kate looking up and down the busy street to be sure Jackson and Jilson weren't around. Sticky was avoiding Rennie's gaze, but if he expected a complaint, he certainly wouldn't get it from Rennie. Now was hardly the time. The train station was a bustling, crowded place, with several loading platforms all swarming with people. There was a constant babble of conversation and a barrage of rattling, clacking, and hissing as trains pulled in and out of the station. 
and on top of all of that were loudspeaker announcements that echoed everywhere. It was very difficult to hear anything clearly. Try again, said Constance. Kate again tried to contact Captain Nolan on Cannonball's radio, but the squawk that came through the speaker was unintelligible. For all she knew, her own voice on the other end had sounded a bit even squawkish. Even if not, the noisy station might have made her words impossible to comprehend. There was no way to tell if the captain had understood her, or even if it was the captain who had responded. Kate turned off the radio to preserve its battery. They would have to try again later. Constance scowled. You should have radioed from the castle, Kate. If you recall, Kate said lightly, I was a little busy helping us escape. Granny said nothing. He had observed Kate's efforts to contact the captain with the strange mixture of hope and misgiving, and he thought it best to keep quiet until he figured out how he really felt. Stiggy came hurrying over from the ticket counter. I got directions, he said, waving a piece of paper. The rental lockers are that way. The others followed Stiggy through a door and down the short corridor. If the key didn't open a locker, the children had no idea how they were to decide where to go next. So it was with considerable anxiety that they watched Kate insert the key into locker 37. She turned the key. The lock sprang. Inside the locker was an envelope and a stack of paper of money. The bills were very colorful, nothing at all like the money the children were so used to, and Constance regarded them skeptically. Fake money? Why would he give us fake money? Those are Euro bank notes, Sticky said. They're common courtesy in Europe. Okay, so it's real money, said Constance. What are we supposed to buy with it? Train tickets, I imagine, said Rennie, opening a letter and reading it aloud. You've used your gifts to come this far, and done so most terrifically. The next step also calls for gifts, Constance's specifically. Me, Constance said. What am I supposed to do? Predict the stupid weather? The others looked at one another, stymed. Maybe you should look around, Rennie suggested. Maybe the answer will come to you. Give me a break, said Constance, feeling very much on the spot. She glanced up and down the corridor. I see lockers. That's it. No patterns, Sticky asked. Hmm, the lockers do seem to be arranged in numerical order, Constance said sarcastically. I wonder if that's important. Kate had begun transferring the money from the locker to her bucket. You're joking, she said, but maybe the numbers are significant. She tapped the number on her locker door. Maybe 37 means something. It probably means the first 36 lockers were taken when Mr. Benedict rented this one, said Constance. It isn't a bad idea, said Rennie. Let's think about it. But no matter how hard they all thought about it, they couldn't find any significance in the number. Constance, meanwhile, began to pace back and forth. For Constance, this was unusual behavior. It was more like Rennie. And Rennie watched her closely, trying to imagine how Mr. Benedict expected them to figure out this clue. If anyone was sensitive to Constance's volatile moods, Mr. Benedict was. It seemed unlike him to put such pressure on her. Truly hadn't predicted so much would be riding on this clue. But even so, she probably had a minute intended for Constance to figure it all out by herself. Constance had stopped pacing now, and Rennie suddenly realized she was staring hard at him. What's the matter, he said. You're figuring this out, Constance said. I can tell. I am, Rennie said. You can? Sticky and Kate exchanged glances. They could tell something important was happening. Maybe it's a look in your eye, Constance said. Or maybe it's your expression. Or the way you breathe, or... I don't know. I can tell, though. You're about to come up with the answer. She continued to stare at Rennie, her eyes searching now half hopeful and half afraid. Rennie tried to keep his composure. He knew Constance needed him to remain calm, but in fact his heart was racing. It was very strange indeed to have his thoughts revealed like that. 
for his thoughts on the matter had just shifted a little, had they not? He begun to broaden his perspective on the clue, to consider how he might look at it in a different way. There, said Constance, just as Rennie's eyes widened and he opened his mouth to speak. You figured it out. Rennie's mouth snapped shut. He took a deep breath. Okay, that's pretty unsettling, Constance. Tell me about it, said Constance. Think, how is it for me? Kate couldn't keep quiet any longer. What is it, then? What's the answer? Tell us for crying out loud. It's the pendant, said Rennie, pointing to Constance's new necklace. Mr. Benedict didn't mean gift as in talent. He meant gift as in present. Kate laughed. Well, what do you know? Your present was a clue in disguise. Come on, Constance, let's have a look. Constance unclasped the necklace and held the pendant in front of her, turning the miniature globe over and over on her fingers. She gazed at it sadly, admiring anew its rich greens and blues and its brilliant little crystal. The world is your oyster, Mr. Benedict had written in her birthday card, and now they all understood what he had in more mind than it first appeared. He'd been planning this exciting trip around the world, unaware of the danger into which he was about to fall, and into which Constance and the others would follow him. Constance thrust the pendants toward Kate. Here, she said in a choked voice, look at it all you want. She turned and walked a few paces down the corridor, visibly upset. The others looked after her with concern, but there was little they could do to comfort Constance right now. They still had to figure out where to go next, and it was improving as easy as any of them had hoped. The contents of the oceans and the globe pendant were clearly dissipated, but there was no markings anywhere to indicate destination, and the crystal was set in the middle of the Pacific, apparently no help. Any thoughts? Kate asked. Rennie was scratching his head. Mr. Benedict wrote that the world was her oyster, right? I think this oyster must have a pearl inside. The question is, how do we get it? Maybe there's some kind of internal mechanism. Try pressing on the crystal. Kate pressed the crystal. Nothing happened. She tried moving it up and down like a switch, then twisting it like a dial. The crystal was firmly, fat, firmly set, however, and wouldn't budge. She turned the globe, inspecting it carefully. There was no disconcertable seams, no secret hinges. Kate glanced down the corridor at Constance and whispered, Do you think we have to crack it open? Sticky grimaced. I hope not. She upset as it is. Mr. Benedict wouldn't do that to Constance, said Rennie. There must be some other way. I could pry the crystal off with my knife, Kate said. Maybe there's a hidden catch or something beneath it. We can have the crystal reset later, she shrugged, assuming you know we can survive that long. Sticky covered his face. I hate it when you say things like that. Can you do it without breaking the pendant or scratching it up, Rennie asked. I think so, Kate said. She peered closely at the edge of the crystal to see exactly how it would have been set. Wait a minute, there seems to be something. She held the crystal right up to one eye and close to the other. Whoa! Constance hurried back to them. What? What is it? Grinning, Kate held her the pendant. That crystal's not exactly what it seems. Just don't look at it. Try looking through it. Constance covered one eye and held the pendant very close to the other. She stared. Whoa! She jerked the pendant away, looked at it as if she had never seen it before, then brought it close to peering into the crystal again. The crystal, as the boys soon discovered for themselves, was a magnifying glass. Looking through it revealed the map of the pollen hidden inside the pendant. The map was smaller than a postage stamp, but perfectly legible when seen through the crystal. A bright red X marked the city called Thurkabannon, and at the bottom of the map was the name of a hotel and street address. I saw that city on the schedule board, Sticky said. There's a train leaving for it in ten minutes. 
Then it's time to catch a train, Rennie said. As the members of the mysterious Spandex Society hurried to catch their train, Jackson and Jilson, less hurried but every bit as purposeful, entered the station. With frowning faces, they scanned the crowd. Neither was especially meth- methodical by nature, and their search at first was hap- hazardous. After a few minutes of fruitless looking, however, Jackson had the idea of staring at one platform and walking slowly along on the other platforms until they reached the other side of the station. He told Jilson that this was what they would do. I don't like be telling, being told what to do, said Jelson. Maybe not, said Jackson, but you don't like making decisions either. That's true, Jelson said, and she started walking, shoving aside a young businessman who dropped his newspaper and almost fell. So you tell me what to do, Jackson, but you don't tell me why. For the last time, why are we at the train station? Jackson ignored her. They just come to the first platform. You look that way into the station, he said, pleased with himself for having devised his system, and I'll look this way toward the platforms. Jilson grunted and did as Jackson said, but after passing the first two platforms, she stood inside of the wild-haired, spectacled girl they'd seen at the castle, the one who behaved so curiously and looked so familiar. Then she remembered that Jackson had never answered her question. Hey, she said, tell me why we're here or I'm going to club you. This time, Jackson decided to answer. Because Benedict came here, Jilson, don't you remember? He and that nervous-looking woman came here on the same morning they went to the castle. Of course I remember, but so what? So they came and left without catching a train, and they never did catch a train. They left on a plane, which means they were up to something at the station, Jilson, something other than catching a train. Jilson stared blankly at him. That's it? Yes, that's it. Jackson said irritably. Besides, the castle, this is the only place in the city that we know is connected to Benedict. If we saw someone suspicious hurrying away from the first place, and we didn't find her on the street, don't you think we ought to look around the... As Jackson was talking, they came to the next platform where a train was about to pull away. The platform was empty now. All the passengers had boarded, except for one girl who leaped aboard the last car just as the train began to move. A blonde girl with a bucket. Jackson stopped in his tracks. I just saw Kate Weatherall get onto that train. So did I, said Jelson, who had forgotten that her job was to look away from the trains into the crowded station. And because she wasn't looking in that direction, she failed to see a businessman emerge from the crowd and come to stand behind her and Jackson. This businessman was not the young fellow Jelson had shoved aside earlier. This businessman carried a briefcase, and he wore an expensive suit, expensive cologne, and two expensive watches, one on each wrist. Had Jilson seen this man earlier, it would have never occurred to her to shove him. Kate Weatherall, Jilson was saying. Well, 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 it did look like her, but can we be sure? I don't want to report it for not sure. He hates him when we make mistakes, you know. Can we be sure? Jackson mimicked with a sneer. What other girl in the world carries a bucket wherever she goes, Jilson? It was Kate Weatherall, without a doubt. Let's find out where the train is headed, and then... Jackson stopped talking. He stiffened. He had caught the scent of expensive cologne. Jilson, noticing Jackson's odd demeanor, likewise stiffened. Together they turned and discovered the businessman standing behind them. The man looked serious, but his eyes displayed an obvious satisfaction, even pleasure. Setting down his briefcase, he placed one hand on Jackson's shoulder and the other on Jilson's. Good work, he said. Now come with me. (laughs) 